Hello, Beth Cook, and hello, RB significant friends out there in the world. Um, I hope everybody's doing great. Thanks for coming back. Beth, how are you? I am good. In Chicago, we're having this air and water show going on. So if our guests hear a little bit of the flyby that I'm unable to mute, it's just, you know, some jets going mock something out there <laughs> over the lake and it's right over my house. So it's, it's always a fun weekend. That's a little texture to the podcast. Um, I've had, you know, I, my son and daughter went back to school this week. Okay. My daughter started high school and and I'm working with our, we have a mutual friend by the name of Brandon Slade, who we're going to have on the podcast here in the upcoming weeks. Um, I've been working with Brandon with his company, Untapped Learning, and I've just had some really amazing conversations with a couple of university presidents over the last couple of weeks. And one of them was um, somebody that you and I both know, know well, uh, Dr. David Hayes at Co College. And so I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this topic. Um, and I, I just seen what my daughter's gone through starting high school and having these conversations about kids going to high school for the first time, going to college for the first time. Mm. My question is for you. If you look back, you know, the 10 years since you and I were in college, what do you, <laughs> the 10 years? Absolutely. You caught that. Okay. It was good. Uh, um, accurate too. Very accurate. You can multiply that by a couple numbers. Um, what do you wish when you look back that the first couple of weeks, let's say the first five or six weeks of college, what do you wish your high school or your college that first year, what do you wish they would have done for you? What do you feel like you needed at that point to really get off on the right foot, to, to become a learner, to really know how to handle not only the academic side, but the social side? Is there something that you wish they would have done for you? So it's probably not a great question for me because I was a different, unique kid, but I think there's probably a perspective that wasn't me. So let me tell you, me, I, I was the kind of kid that was very motivated. I always knew what I wanted to do. At a minimum, I knew I wanted a business degree. Um, the thing I loved about going to a small private liberal arts school, which wasn't actually in my vision you know i was going to go d1 dive at a big school out east um and, and if then, we haven't talked about this yet beth, beth was an all-american diver <laughs> but inch um yes yeah, so i the i only came across co because they reached out to me and it was on my like travels of it, it made sense and we could fit it in along the way of visits and so i went and had an experience and stayed over and you know, the school, the people sold me and it li like literally changed my world. And what I loved about the experience, and I know I'll go back to your question, is just I got to learn more than I would have explored naturally if I would have went to a bigger state school where I would have just they have your elective or they have the things you have to do and then you you get to choose whatever career path. And I got to explore so many different things, but I was always a kid kind of knew what I wanted. And I also had confidence that I don't even know where it came from, but if I couldn't figure it out, I would figure it out. Like if I didn't know the answer, I just knew I could ask people enough people to do it. So to me, I don't know if there's really anything other than the advice I give looking back is take advantage of every experience and anything you're interested in. So maybe there's something again, when I'm reflecting that 
they could have brought me in or brought all of the first years in and said, let me walk you through. There's life and you, of course, do whatever you're meant to do and, and you have your careers, but don't throw away the opportunities to learn and experience um, throughout the next four plus years, right? And I think I was so driven to get the degree to get a successful career. I missed out and have made up for it since on taking advantage of things like a broad terms. Like I, I felt like that was a luxury um, and I would miss out on something more realistic. And so that shame on me. And I think so if the school would bring in freshmen of really saying, giving perspective, you have your whole life to go and work and make money. And yes, I know it's important, but take advantage of learning and being curious and experiencing the opportunities that exist for you, because that will actually formulate your life story, which you yeah. don't even know about. It, it, does that make sense? So no, I'm it's, it's perfect sense. You, we we want in in the conversations I'm having, and and I, the the conversations I've had with these university presidents have been profound because I love the innovation that they're really attacking. They're really saying we're going to look at college education in a completely different way. And we're going to really make sure kids are getting here and we're starting with a successful plan. And part of that is being Johnny Appleseed and saying, we have to plant some seeds, take chances, travel, go overseas. We have great opportunities to go overseas. Make that risk, make that financial risk, make that philosophical risk, take it, you know? And I think you have to be a seed planter. So that's where it kind of came from. The other side, so my daughter's at a big high school this year as a freshman, and she's a volleyball player, and they went through tryouts. She came home two days in a row, and none of the coaches ever introduced themselves to these 98 girls trying out for 48 spots. She didn't know the head coach's name. She didn't know the assistant coach's name. They never asked her her name. They never had her fill out a card. They never asked her what position she played. She, they never asked her how much experience she had. Okay. And then she has the first day of school and she's in each class for seven minutes after a two hour assembly. She gets seven minutes in each classroom to start the day. And I go, well, did you get your locker? She goes, no, we have to figure that out on our own. We have to go tell them if we want. So nobody gave you a locker and set up your locker room and gave you, you know, a chance to put your bag somewhere and where to put your books. She's carrying around these two bags that each weigh 30 pounds, one for volleyball and one for her classroom. And, and the first day, they don't even bring the upperclassmen in. So they did, they, you know, that's really smart to just say, we're going to bring the freshmen and the newcomers in day one. But no one introduced her to a locker where they say, hey, let's get, let's get 50 pounds off your back. You know, so for me, it's just such, it's such a, in my brain right now, top of my brain with, and, and so I'm going to throw this question back to you from an HR person. What do you want to do for your employees that are starting for the first time? How do we introduce them to that new world of this job, this career, this business? What's the best way to attack that for these people? So they're comfortable and they want to stay. So I think I will answer your question, but I did want to add something back to the college experience. I, on that seed planting, what I also think would be great is if people help break down the finances so that you know that even though you feel like you're spending the more money that you can ever even imagine you'll ever see in your life, okay, 
how it's broken we're down. We're going back to that college conversation. Just the college. And I will answer your, your corporate yeah. question. But I just wanted, because I think that's often underplayed is, is the the value and if in it you know if you actually break that down how much that investment if you bring it out through a lifetime of opportunity it's not a waste even though it feels like more money you can ever imagine but you know i think some sort of education on this is investment in your career whole in your life not just career if you truly plant the seeds and take those college experiences as true learning opportunities to truly figure out what you want to be when you grow up, the type of person you want to be, all of those. So going back to college, there's a lot of opportunity to your point within helping freshmen or new college incumbents to get acclimated in a more secure and educated way. So there's a lot of opportunity, I think. Going back to the corporate question you asked, I mean, it, it's a it's in every single role that I've had probably over the last 15 years, and I've been in it over 20 but where I really focus on in the candidate and employee experience. I've often said probably the last few roles that I've started, I joined the company in spite of the process, right? So my candidate experience wasn't necessarily phenomenal. I'm right. um, not holistically, but there are, you know, again, in, in, in major organized, um, companies where you feel like they should have that down. And then once you got on board, it was often, you know, really delegated to whom you're reporting to. So if they were good at it, you had a great employee experience onboarding. If they weren't great at it, or they were just pulled in a million different directions and didn't have the support or resources, you know, you're just, you're figuring it out. And so I think, A, bonus of you have to figure it out. Is it good, good problem solving and critical thinking skills? Like you'll be able to do it, but I just feel like you should be set up for success because not everyone is built. If they feel they're drowning in something that's so new and they want to make a difference, they will pop out. And I think to going back to seed planting, if you truly help somebody feel like you're baby stepping along each process in a way that slowly feeds them information, provides them the resources that they can go and get more information from in the future, and then helps them figure out ways to answer the questions, but in a slow, um, specific way, I think. And then also having just good, like, you know, human contact. I mean, again, it, interesting in a virtual world, but can you take them to lunch? If you're physically there, let's go grab a lunch. Let's go grab some time where we're just catching up right. or virtually. If you're in a hundred percent remote location, let's have a virtual lunch, right? Let's, let's set up this time, grab your whatever meal of choice, and let's just get to know each other. So there's different ways of being able to do it. But I think both educational and corporate America, and I think it is a focus. We just often haven't put as much prioritization on it that should probably be there. Cause I think people that have been there and are so busy forget that experience is valuable to retain and um, help success, help you be successful, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's ironic. I'm doing a consulting gig next week and, and I'm building out this organization's hiring practices. I'm, I'm you know, this is, this is your timeline. It's hiring isn't, okay, we lost somebody. We've got to hire somebody. It doesn't start in that window. Hiring is 365 days a year. We always got to be looking for great people. We always have to be collecting people. And then when we find those people, we have to celebrate them. We have to comfort them. We have to welcome them. We have to make them feel great. And so when I look at schools, I see colleges really focusing on that. And I don't see the high schools doing enough to teach. You know, the principals might do a good job. 
Maybe the deans do a great job, but not teaching the coaches and the teachers how to do that the right way. I don't see enough of that. And, and so I wanted to have that conversation today. And some of that leads into our great guest today. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of give you some context here because Franzi Proxel Tabucci is in my family. Um, she's married um, to my wife's cousin, Doug Tabucci. And I, I've known Franzi, I don't know, for 10 years now since her and Doug started dating. And she has this amazing brain and this unbelievable job. Okay. So I'm going to give you a little background on Franzi before we talk to her. She's got a, a, she got her degree. She's German. So she's from the country of Germany. She got her degree from the free university of Berlin. So I want you to hear that first word free university of Berlin. Cause that's a little foreshadowing. She's going to talk about what that education meant to her and that word free. She's got two master's degrees. She's got a master's degree from New York University, one of the top universities in the country. And her master's is in transnational security and peace and conflict studies, okay? I, I had to look up every one of those words. I had to get a dictionary out for every one of those words. She's got a master's degree in this. Not only does she have a master's degree from NYU, she's got a master's degree from King's College of London, another one of the top universities in the world. And she's got a degree from there in the war in the subject area in her master's is war in the modern world. So when I tell you that she's the director of multilateral relations for an organization called Global Center for Cooperative Security, your brain is going to spin like mine and Beth's did. Okay. Franzi's job is to work with governments and organizations to help eliminate terrorism sex trade, sex traffic, uh, drug issues, wars. Her job is to make sure that she brings people together. So all these problems in the world, we're getting good people, talking to other people and trying to come to solutions. So what she does is amazing. And you're gonna hear me, one of the first questions I'm gonna talk to her about is she got to speak. She was asked to speak at the United Nations a few months back on counterterrorism. And it was brilliant what she did. Um, you know, if you've seen, maybe you don't know much about the United Nations, but maybe you've seen a clip on the news where the president or a pre, you know, prime minister is speaking in front of all these world leaders. That's where she was at, speaking to all these people. So uh, what she does for a living is amazing. And um, I think we're going to have uh, a lot of our audience is going to be really thrilled with what they're going to learn from her. Would you agree? A hundred percent. I mean, her insight and approach it, it was so, it, well, it is impactful and, and it's so amazing. Like, you know, you ask a great question is like, how do you deal with all the stuff, you know, you, you see and read about every day and are still going after solving those problems and not feel like I have to give up. Right. And so you talk to her and you get to wait and hear about her answer, but um, she's, what an incredible guest, just an incredible mind, an incredible value of using the her curiosities and the things that she learned and was interested in to help a real big problem in the world. And yet it's, it is like boiling an ocean, but she still does it as we heard on another guest, one bucket at a time. Yeah, it's great. 
Yeah, and you, you and I have a tendency to invite guests to the podcast that aren't relatives to us, but we consider them brothers and sisters. We just have that connection with them. They're 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 not blood family, but they're they're really a part of our family. And and Franzi's one of those. She's I, I think of her as a little sister. Her and her her husband. I've known him since he was a little boy, and um, you know, and I love them both. But I hope our audience understands we are bringing people that we consider family on this but we're bringing them on because they are profound and they're significant in every way. And I think you're going to find that really quickly with Miss Franzi. Now she does have a German accent. So some of the things you have to listen in a little bit, uh, but she's, she's amazing. And, and uh, I think you'll, everybody will love her. So here is Miss Franzi Proxel to Bucci. Enjoy. All right. So Franzi, we're just crazy thankful that you're here, but I'm not going to bury the lead here. I want to know what is it like as a human being to sit in front of the of the United Nations and speak in front of all these political figures from all over the world. What what does that what does that feel like? Um, it's really scary. <laughs> yeah, it was really so. I also didn't know for a really long time that I will do it. So usually how it works for a smaller team or, you know, for a nonprofit, we're like 15, 16 people in total. And usually when we get any kind of speaking request, we just look at the team and see sort of who's been working on what, who's best place. So I actually just got back from Europe to do a consultation with our partners and haven't checked my work emails for quite a bit. And so I think I found out on a Monday or Tuesday that I will brief the Security Council on a Thursday. And I remember reading that email and being like, wait, what am I doing? Like, why is this but like- two days notice? Yeah. And oh like, God, I didn't the whole thing, right? So it's like, I'm like, okay, hold on. We're sure that no one else can do this. And they were like, well, it's in gender, it's in women participation. It's sort of like what I spent the last few years doing some research on. So I was like, okay, like we're doing this. We're, so it's intimidating, but there was someone sitting next to me who was the undersecretary general for the UN Office of Counterterrorism. And he's very sweet man. Um, and he just looked at me and he was like, just enjoy. And I remember like reading my speech or sort of speaking and sort of like having that in my mind. I'm like, the chances of you coming back here are very unlikely in your career. And if you now spend the next 10 minutes just freaking out, you will miss that point. So I remember like in the middle of the speech, I was like, just enjoy, like just enjoy it. And that kind of helped a little bit, but it was still very terrifying. Well, I'll tell you this, I watched <laughs> it and I listened to it all. And I, I sat there with my jaw on the, on the table because I was so proud of you, number one, but yeah. you, you knocked it out of the park. I mean, um, I learned so much and I was so proud of the fact that uh, how you attacked that conversation and what you're doing, you know, you, you and I have had multiple conversations about your career, but mm -hmm. to see you in front of that room doing what you did, I was just so proud of you. You just, you were great. It's very sweet. I appreciate you watching and sitting through this. <laughs> no, it was great. It was really good. So, you know, Beth and I, Beth and I have looked at your resume. We've looked at at what you do. So, what what I want is for our audience, which is basically Doug, Robbie, and my mom, and Beth. <laughs> so we we can speak. You know, Ricky might listen to it. Your 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 brother in laws. Um, uh, I want to know this, okay? In the simplest layman's terms, 
you work for an organization called the the Global Center. And you tell me if I got this wrong. Global Center on Cooperative Security, correct? Correct. Yes. Right. In the simplest layman's terms, what is your mission? What are you guys trying to accomplish? Oh man, Matt! Several comms people have worked with us over the last few years to try to get us to be better right. um, at laying out our mission. So well, somebody's doing that. <laughs> yeah, because we definitely need help. It's not uh, my elevator pitch is not really refined. So the division of the organization is a more just and secure world. That's usually what we say, and sort of the contribution that our organization does or follows for to fulfill that vision is working on the root causes of violent extremism around the world through a human rights approach. So what that means is there are so many people around the world that join violent extremist or terrorist groups and organizations for a magnitude of varying reasons. And we work with partners and those partners are civil society organizations, governments, private sector, tech companies, really with like the whole bandwidth of society on supporting them and working with them to prevent uh, folks from joining terrorist groups or violent extremist groups. And then also working on the chain of sort of the follow on and like the aftermath, if you will. So if if individuals left and they want to come back into their society and sort of be rehabilitated into their community, what does that look like? How do judges approach a trial that has to do with a violent extremist case or terrorist offenders? How do prisons work with terrorist offenders and what do they need to know that's different from any other offender? We work with civil society organizations that see folks from their community leaving to join a terrorist group or that are directly marginalized or terrorized, what can they do or what is the work that they can do? So it can look very different right. ways, but that's sort of the mission and the goal. Okay. I know Beth's got a lot of questions, but I'm going to ask one more here. I'm going to, I have always taught my students the power of the pack. Okay. So mm -hmm. when you see injustice or want to solve a problem, the more companions, the partners, the individuals you can get on the same page with you, mm -hmm. the less pressure that feels to address those, those social injustices. So, and the less fear you might have. And it's the idea of, of an army of one doesn't win very often, right? All right. So the problem I see with that philosophy is that we have violent extremists, misogynists, racists, the intolerant, the ignorant, the greedy, have all seemed to figure out the same philosophy right? Mm -hmm. So we want to have all the money and all the power. And let's partner with some other greedy, corrupt son of a guns to accomplish our wants. And then in the meantime, let's go after the ignorant and we'll, we'll try and pull them into our, what we're trying to accomplish. So with all that said, how do you deal with that? Am, am I wrong with that idea? Isn't that what you're in, you're trying to do is getting all these governments and organizations to kind of say, hey, if we do this together, we got a better shot of, of making change. Yeah, but as you say, everyone has different objectives, right? So it's really right. hard getting everyone on the same page because everyone has a different role. In particular, governments, I think the tricky part, and it's sort of 
what my work focuses on, the government in particular, if you look at a multilateral organization like the United Nations, perceives the threat of terrorism. For it to be tackled by someone like the UN, it right. has to be considered an international threat, which is a national security concern. So governments quite often argue, well, it's our responsibility, civil society or sort of communities you know, we need to protect our borders, we need to protect our citizens. So even having that mind shift of we're all doing it together and we have to do it together and what that could look like, we've gotten much better at it. I think after 9-11, we saw that sort of an over-militarized approach to these issues is not doing what it's supposed to doing. If anything, we're seeing Afghanistan right now. And like, you know, there are a lot of questions I think in our field right now. It's like clearly the last, you know, 22, 23 years haven't really, we haven't gotten as far as we potentially could have gone if we would all come together. Right. But as you say, the terrorist groups themselves and the, the, the reasons why people are compelled to join them, they figured out the same thing as well, maybe sometimes even much better than our own right. societies in giving individuals a sense of belonging, a purpose in life, a community that is stronger than what we're offering as a society. And that's a quite challenging and difficult thing to tackle. And boy, do we see that right now politically in our country, in the United yeah. States. Yeah. Yeah, I have a question. So like, and you can pick me maybe an example, but when you go in to consult and advise on some of these ideas, say with a tech company or a government, I mean, you can pick the example because I know it would be a bespoke approach depending on what they're looking to get after. But I, that's exactly what you just said earlier. I thought it's really about if somebody feels like they don't belong, they're going to seek belonging and they're going to seek recognition even if it comes in forms that aren't ideal, right? I mean, you can see that in gangs in the U.S. Um, so what have you, could you give me an example of a time that you've recognized an approach where a company can actually make a little bit of a difference? And what are some of those ideas, that tangible ideas to impact and what age, I think maybe, to impact to help prevent some of the terrorism mindsets that happen later in life and maybe even earlier in life. I guess it could hit all ages. Yeah. And it's really, it's really tricky, as you say, because usually it's not just one thing that brings a person into that path, like any other, um, you know, if you look into just the violence, it doesn't have to be about extremism or terrorism. If you, um, or, or drug use or, uh, you know, any kind of, um, you know, family issues, like it can be a thousand things. And usually it's a layering of various reasons that then put someone on that path. Um, we actually see a lot of times it's an economic incentive as well. Mm -hmm. If you grow up in a country where there are no job opportunities and you're put in a position where you have to um, take care of your family, you know, you make really hard choices. I think all of us know that, that like, you know, if you put in that position. Um, so, it's very difficult. I think how we're trying as an organization is to start precisely there of bringing all multi or like all stakeholders together. So what we try to do now, the organization has existed for a while. So we have standing relationships, but usually when we go into, let's say a country or a community context, we do an assessment, a landscape and stakeholder assessment of 
what are the issues, what does research say, um, sort of who's operating, are there already actors in, in the country or in the community that try to help and what are they doing? And then sort of bring everyone around the table and sort of try to figure out and have a conversation around what, what, what they see. Usually my approach or the organization's approach is particular communities and civil society know often best uh, because they see it they're on the day-to-day -day, uh, around and that can be really anyone that can be teachers that are involved that can be psychologists parents um, that can be community leaders quite often religious leaders really like, the more you talk to people really and sort of trying to piece it together you recognize everyone has a role um, but quite often it's the, the individuals in the community that knows best so we try to support and listen to them of what they've identified. And so we have really the pleasure and honor of working with civil society organizations and individuals around the world that do exceptional work and put their lives really at risk on a daily basis. Um, and yeah, so it's quite, it's a, it's a difficult answer to give. It can be Often it's about a human connection. It can be really identifying the individuals in a community that have that personality and sort of that, that power and that willingness to, com to communicate and engage with individuals. Um, it can be, you know, in a, I think in the simplest sense for if we look at private sector and tech companies, it would be for them to take on a do no harm approach. So really thinking through their company philosophy and sort of how they're leaving or operating within a culture and a context, and is that creating more harm than good, and how that could be shifted? So, it really looks different depending on who you who you talk to. And Do you have you a little success story of again. I know it it takes a while. It's like boiling an ocean. That's what I feel like. But we just interviewed somebody that said they take instead of boiling an ocean one bucket at a time right and that's yeah. kind of like do you have a, an example of I mean that maybe it's making little micro steps but a specific example of and you don't have to give the the details or the country but of yeah an effort that you put in place through one of the many partners that you work with that seems to be getting some legs of positivity yeah, I mean, there's so many, and I think that's actually part of one of the things that we don't do well is really, and that I would argue um, a lot of terrorist organizations do better is actually defining and talking about what works and like the positive vision of it. What are we offering uh, individuals? Promoting your successes as well. Yeah, and like thinking about sort of what, what has worked and really taking time to sort of evaluate those sort of like approaches. Um, I mean, there are so many success stories. There is, I know, and I'm not going to mention like specifics, but there was a success story. So if, I don't know if you remember, there were a lot of girls that were kidnapped in Africa and they were yes. returned for, that would be an example of actually like very pragmatically finding young girls that were abducted into a terrorist organization and that are being brought back to their village. Mm. That's a very concrete thing, but then there's also policies. I work a lot with governments and then rewriting their policy to approach they're taking on a human rights approach in how they're tackling terrorism and violent extremism within their own country instead of marginalizing further communities that are already marginalized, which we've seen a lot when 
governments first started drafting policies after 9-11 or like the UK, you said you travel to the UK as a Good example, they have something called the prevent strategy and they're in the, I think, fourth or fifth iteration of their strategy. And the first year came out that they actually marginalized Muslim communities much more than helped them because all the strategy really focused on was, oh, it seems to be a threat from the Muslim community. So we're gonna police that harder and those communities harder, but that marginalized those communities even more that fractured the country and the structure of society much more than it brought them together. So they wrote several iterations. Um, we're far from perfect, but it's definitely better than the first iteration. So continuing to hold governments accountable for their own work and how they're actually impacting communities that further push individuals away is like another example of why it's so important to, to continuously to work together really. Hmm. Franzi, I was really intrigued with the the article you and a and one of your colleagues wrote recently yeah. on and and really the the centerpiece of it for me that really jumped off the page was fear, you know and and for me I kept thinking about it. I just watched this um, show on Apple TV about a hijacking on a plane, you know the idea that there's 250 people on this plane and there's three people with guns or four people with guns and they're controlling the masses and that fear of what that does for me individually. And, and the quote that I pulled out of that article that I thought was really profound, the stat that you gave was 3.2% of the world's population. So tiny, tiny amount of the world's population live in countries with open civic space. Mm -hmm. And for me, it, 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 I thought it was great. It was a great stat to tie together what you guys were talking about. Tell our audience how you define open civic space and why that 3.2%, that terribly low number, why that is so important to grow it when, when you're seeing it go the other way, you were seeing it shrinking. What does that yeah. open civic space do for a country, do for a community? Yeah. What's the power of that? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Yeah, Annabelle and I wrote the article just based on various projects that we're currently working on and sort of being able to, um, to sort of observe a few trends and our colleagues from the organization is called Civicus, who they have a tracker for civic space and human rights. And that's where we pulled that number from. Um, and they're, they're amazing at the uh, at Civicus. It's a great organization. And so how we define it or part of it is actually, it's in its interest, I mean, because you brought up the, the US context a couple of times, it's the freedom of speech and it's the freedom of assembly. And it's, you know, all those, which I think a lot of people would say intrinsically American rights as well. And unfortunately we see in this country itself that, you know, a downward spiraling trend um, that make an open civic space. And, you know, that you can speak out, that you can voice your opinion, that you have a freedom of expression. Um, and unfortunately, what we're seeing in the political climate, and I'm sure no one is really surprised because we see it in all kind of media and news examples of that, um, it's gotten more difficult over the last few years. And we've actually seen more laws come out that really shrink that space. and. Um, that become, you know, again, staying with the US, like if you look at the abortion laws, if you look at politically the elections, what happened, and that's all part of, you know, what we consider civic space and the, the individual freedom 
that we have as a person to be who we, we are. Um, and unfortunately across the world, that is getting more difficult because you have, you mentioned a few of those in the beginning, Matt, like you have intolerance and racism rising. You have extremist voices and opinions rising that suppress other opinions. And that's really what we see and what we mean when we say we have a shrinking civic space, really more so than a growing civic space. And for me, I immediately thought when, when I read that, I immediately thought of libraries and the attack, yeah. the attack books. On books, the attack on, yeah. I mean, my family, we love the library. I mean, we, we don't have a ton of money. So for us to go out and buy a $25 book and read it once and then go, okay, what do I do with this? It's hard. So mm -hmm. I love the fact that I can take my kids to the library. They can look at every book and go, okay, what do I like? You know, I, what do I want to read? So the fact that we're shutting down libraries in the United States of America, we're back to banning books. Yeah. You know, healthy books, the things that we, you know, kids need to learn. And, and the idea is, well, I don't agree that that book should be read. Okay, well, then don't pick it up. Yeah, you know, we've lost that mindset. Where, okay, it's like this Bud Light thing that's going on right now in, in our country. You know, why do I care? Why does it affect me that Bud Light wants to, wants to focus on this this part of our community and do something good to promote it. Why does it affect me? So I, I guess for me, that's where the extremism comes from. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody gets really angry in a chat room and then I, I listen to it and go, okay, maybe I should be angry about this too. You know, is that what, is that where it all starts with something that little? I think it's the same source that you mentioned earlier uh, of like being in an airplane and being worried about it's fear. It's fear of you having to protect yourself and your lifestyle. And often, and you know this from sports, yeah. that means going into the offense instead of the defense. And I think that's what a lot of people choose to do in a very unhealthy way instead of saying, you know, we can all live and coexist. And I might disagree with you we are now at a state where we're so fueled by fear. And I do unfortunately think that media and news have a lot to do with it and sort of how that is being run as a business of selling stories of really portraying, yeah, and sort of like fueling that fear that then becomes a motivation to go so far um, because you really think there isn't space anymore for us to coexist. So individuals think, okay, I have to protect what I believe and have to make that the rule. And like, as a German, the idea that books are being banned is a quite terrifying thought to, yeah. to have. And yeah. um, I mean, for many people, not just as a German, but I remember as a, a young kid, I grew up in school learning so much about World War II and some of those initial signs and indicators that you know back then might have not been in context but now looking back I mean it's always easier looking back and being like oh there was a trajectory but we are definitely at a point in the U.S. where it feels we're way too close to sort of that trajectory for I think most people's liking and um, yeah. It's it's amazing how much oxygen that fire is yeah you know. yeah and yeah, I, yeah. I have a question just to kind of put it in perspective. What you do is so, I think, altruistic. And I think there might be a lot of people saying, how can I help or how can I get into it? 
tell me how you got into this. Like, how did you, have you always had that passion? What kind of, cause I just, you know, I've always wanted to do good things, but I ended up in corporate America business and I'm trying to do good things where I sit and I actually enjoy what I do. But like, I mean, how did you get this passion? And then that led you to where you're at with the global center of cooperative security. Um, I don't really, I'm not sure how I, I will say openly that I've never been someone in school that was like, oh, I know what I want to be. And I remember graduating high school and being like, what do I do? And really going almost very systematically through options of like, what could I study in university? I've always been really interested in sort of how society works or why individuals choose and make certain decisions Mm -hmm. um, in life and how we treat each other within a community. And I think sort of that brought me into the path of, okay, there are a few sort of social sciences, political sciences, um, psychology sort of that were within that area of interest and I ended up studying social and cultural anthropology. I thought the the idea of learning about uh, communities around the world and how communities set themselves up and how we work differently um, was super interesting. It was a great um, undergrad to do because all you really do is read and learn (laughs) about sort of how people live. Um, And then within that, um, a new concentration, which back then was quite controversial because anthropologists are supposed to observe communities and not really interfere. But I remember in university, a new concentration of peace and conflict studies within anthropology came out at my university. And I was really interested because the idea of going to war or conflict and choosing that is a quite strange one to me. I've learned much more about, of course, war theory and sort of why nations choose to go into war than through my grad school. But just like as a very naive thought, I was like, I don't understand how anyone would ever choose like fighting or conflict over peace. And so I ended up doing that. And then within that, I quite quickly And I think it's all timing always, right? Of like sort of the conversations that took place at that time. Um, I actually was introduced to the field of terrorism through suicide bombings because it was at a time when a lot of the suicide bombings um, took place, particularly in Palestine and Israel, which unfortunately continue, of course. But I ended up writing my undergrad thesis on suicide bombers in Palestine and how they make that decision because it seems like such a far-fetched decision to put your own life at like for a greater good. I was just like that thought on an individual basis. I was just really curious and exploring. And that led me to grad school. And then I just kind of got stuck on the topic of terrorism and counterterrorism. And that's how I ended up. It's amazing. So that's just kind of like a great career path for people to say, like, if you're interested, you know, have the conversations, be curious and see where it leads you. Right. I mean, that's amazing. And just follow your gut. I mean, I remember and I will not argue with that because I work in the nonprofit sector, but I remember going to school and everyone was like, like, what are you going to do with anthropology? And I was like, I have no idea. And like, it's a good question. Um, but I think our world changes so much and we see it now through other fields. I mean, there's so many jobs out there that I never even heard of or didn't think were an option when I went to school, like things change so much. So I think following sort of what your interest is, is always a really good 
you know, you can always craft a story out of that. I mean, you would know HR best, but I think I would assume like reading resumes of like, if someone has a compelling story and sort of a compelling um, argument of how they ended up where they are in life, that's always, you know, a good starting point. Yeah. I've never, ever worried about what you got your degree in. I mean, of course, if you want to be a doctor, I get, there's certain things you have to, but there's so many things. I'm like, just be curious. That's the biggest advice I always give when I speak to college students, just be curious and learn whatever. It doesn't matter what you major in for me, at least. Yeah. Maybe I have a unique perspective because I just really want the attributes of investigating that curiosity, you know, taking it to the next level. How do you then transfer what you learned to what you're doing? Because I think that's so important, but I just, I love your story because I think there's so many college students out there. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. And unless I have to do with it, I think some of them have even parked it and said, maybe I should take some time off until I figure out. And I was like, just go, like go and get a degree in art, get a degree in something you're interested in, and then go check out what the world has to offer within that curiosity. I just, I feel like you don't have to have it figured out because look at your great path. Like it's led you to the UN, right? I mean, oh my goodness. No, I will make another, another pitch of like, I really love the United States of America. I feel like I should say it as well. I'm like throwing things in there uh, that criticize the country. I think it's much more difficult for, for children and youth in this country because you pay for your education. And I benefited from the pleasure of growing up in Europe and going to schools that didn't put that pressure on myself or my family and my parents. And so I had the opportunity to, I settled pretty quickly on anthropology, but I, my minors, I took like classes in film, classes in Chinese, classes in like art, classes like, I just like danced around for like two semesters on um, sort of really taking classes that I was just curious about because you're so young and there are so many paths out there and it's so much pressure. So I think particularly like college students here in the US are so quickly confronted with the realities of if you make a wrong decision and there isn't really a wrong decision, but like sort of sticking it out, even if you feel halfway through the studies, you might not, that's not your path because it always comes down to, oh, I threw away money it will cost me more. It will cost my family more. And that's a really difficult, I think, position to be put in when you're that young. I would almost say, and I totally hundred percent agree. I would almost say it's not throwing away money because if you're learning and you're exploring that innovation will come out in whatever you're meant to do. The society to your point is that it's full of opportunity of a, how you can take your natural abilities and what you've learned and apply it to society. Right. And in whatever form that looks like. And I, I agree. I'm just echoing your, your sentiment of don't worry about, again, in the United States, it is expensive, but don't worry about, it's not a waste of money and investment in education and learning something new that you might just be curious about. So I love that. Oh, it's, it's, it's such a good lesson too. I mean, we, we, there's the kids that are going to college now, you're seeing that graph is dropping, you know, fewer and fewer kids are going to college. And, and I, I, and I can see, I can see the reason why some kids don't go because they, I can go get an internship or I can go learn this trade and I can go make money right away. But I I think what you talked about, I know what taking an Eastern religion class did for me. Mm. I was a freshman. I know what that anthropology and that sociology class did to me. It was just like, it blew my mind that um, I didn't even realize what that sociology mean. I didn't know what anthropology meant. I didn't understand how 
similar Hindu, Muslim, uh, Christianity, Catholicism, Lutheran. I didn't understand that they were all basically had the same foundation. And, it, and, it, and just learning those things made me have to be a critical thinker, made me have to think in a different way. And that was so powerful for me. So I, I love that advice. Now, here's the thing that I'm, I'm always impressed by you. You're joyful. Okay. And I know that comes from your family and you're loving and you're caring. And I've never been around you where you weren't happy. I've never had to pull energy from you. You've always been the one giving it. You deal every day with darkness. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, when's the last time you had a conversation in your job where you weren't talking about little girls and sex trade and little boys and little girls and drugs and violence and crime how do you how do you do that how do you continue to be the person you are i feel like you should have a conversation with my husband on a daily well yes you you two are a match for each other because of that. i think you provide each other a really great balance and you're both fantastic people and great parents but how do you come home at night and say mm-hmm. you know what i've got to i've got to put this on the shelf for the next 10 yeah. years really sorry to disappoint you i'm incredibly anxious and neurotic in real life and there isn't i will be honest there isn't uh a day that goes by when we travel you can always ask me where the closest exit is like i go into a subway it's almost like what i would imagine a lot of uh um people that went to the military sort of phase of kind of know your surrounding because that's just part of my job of sort of like having that security and sort of that fear really i mean it it it, you know it comes to me as well so i do usually particularly in public places sort of know quite quickly sort of or i play through worst case scenarios in my mind it's like what would i do if um that comes up quite a bit for me that being said i think at home, I mean, I can't watch a scary movie or a tragic show for the life of me, Matt. Like, if it's not a 90s rom-com, I don't want to see it. Like, it's really, it's like, there is like, I'm way too close to water and to crying as a human. And I think, you know, it took me a really long time of growing up where I always felt like I'm too sensitive and too emotional. And I just now come to a point where I recognize that's a big part of what drives my work and what I, you know, what I need to do my work. So I try to cherish it a bit more, but most of my adult life, I, I sort of was like, oh, you're too sensitive. Why are you so close to like crying all the time? Or like, why are you like, you know, I see like a sad story or a commercial and like, you can throw me away anything that has to do with children and dogs and like, you know, so there is a lot of that, that you probably, you know, that happens probably more behind closed doors of just dealing with it. I do definitely deal with a level of anxiety and I think, you know, motherhood didn't help with that. I feel like that accelerated over the last uh, few years a bit more, but I try to be better at sort of taking, like we, in, in our job, I had to go through various security courses and sort of a big question of that is always, how do you deal with like self-care and like sort of how do you make sure, you know, you prioritize your mental health and so um, yeah, it's a balance act. It's not, it's not great all the time, but it does help, you know. Well, you're in the right conversation because Beth's middle name is Disney. 
it's true. I literally, everyone's like, do you want to watch that horror? And I'm like, no, no, I want to watch something that's completely like it, if it's exact, like a little bit of, you know, tumultuous in, in between, it has to end up okay. And if I don't know that it's not going to work out where well, I'm not even going to risk it. If yeah. I'm like, I mean, there's some that I think are just good for you to educate yourself on, but Ooh, I'm with you. It's got to be like, I got to leave feeling good because it's entertainment because the world, yeah. the world's a struggle. So I, I, but, need, to, I need Yeah. To. And I stay within my niche. So I will say I'm comfortable watching anything oddly that has to do with terrorism. Like if we talk about like a movie about like an airplane hijacking or about, um, um, you know, any kind of like international sort of political threats, I can deal with that. But I think it's because I hear that often enough in reality anyway. Anything that's outside of that is I can't like add to my plate, if that makes sense. So like yeah. any kind of horror stories, any kind of, um, yeah, any kind of like, I don't know, even medical, like those medical shows and everyone loves sort of like medical shows. I'm like, no, I don't. No, thank you. I'm okay with it. I mean, again, you won't have it perfect, but mostly like it's, it's a good, you know, it works out, right? Like, again, I have to have the majority, even though it might be a false sense of, but to your point, I'm a weepy little person throughout those things. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so, and I'm just sitting there and like tears and uh, my family's like, you're sap. And I was like, yeah, know. that's like my family too. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, like get it together, woman. Like it's, not, <laughs> exactly. it's a movie. <laughs> This is fake. All right, get a, get a hold of yourself. I'm like, I know. Yeah. Well, well, it's 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 you, you. And the reason I love you both so much is is your the centerpiece of who you are is your empathy. You know, and, and it, it's what makes great leaders. If you're not empathetic to the world and what's going around you, there there's you, you're not in a position to lead. You're not in a position to make change. You're not in a position to do good. There has to be that humility and empathy, and that's that's what makes you who you are. You're, you're always, whatever job you're in or role you're in, and you're, you're always going to, that empathy is always going to lead for you. And that's what, that's what makes you great. Thank you, Matt. You're so welcome. Now, listen, we're going to have a Thanksgiving or a Christmas coming up where I'm going to pick your brain on China and Ukraine and Russia and great. Africa and Syria. So we, we, I could have this conversation for the next four hours with you, as well know. <laughs> but we've beaten you up enough. You're, we're, we're going to have some fun with you for a couple minutes. We have a rapid fire. So we have about seven, eight questions we're going to throw at you. Um, yeah. We joke because it's called rapid fire and it ends up being the longest part of the interview, but we want you to have fun with these, whatever comes to your brain. Okay. okay. And it's really, it's our opportunity to share your smarts and kind of who you are with the world. Okay. Yeah. You just scared me, but you know, <laughs> you, 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 we'll, we'll have fun with it. Beth, Beth will get us started. So have fun with this. All right. So what job would you do if it wasn't what you're doing? Sell vintage clothes, have a little vintage store somewhere. It's actually my plan B and most people in my field. I've asked this question, a lot of colleagues from like a lot of different paths. Everyone has a plan B and most of the time it has to do with have a little store, have a bakery, um, brewery, like those kind of things that have nothing to do uh, with, with the job we're currently doing, but everything to do with community. I would love to have a little shop, travel the world, buy vintage clothes and like home goods and sell that. Maybe have a little coffee shop front where people can grab a coffee. Yeah. You can combine with the bakers of the people that want to yes. do this. And you're like, okay, why don't you bake in the front and I'll, you know, sell my vintage in the back. I love yeah. it. Yeah. 
my wife will tell you this, but not many people know this. I have a little bit of a fashion infatuation. So I love that idea of really you might have think, you've got an investor in me. Good to I know. Love because clearly, as you can tell, I thought about this. It's not, I don't think it's as far away. Um, this might be might be an option in the future, yeah. hopefully. You'd never know that I know anything about fashion the way I dress, but I do. I, I, I like that idea. I like it. I like where you're headed. All right. You're 21 again. What would you, or maybe you'd meet your 21 year old self in a Marvel movie. Um, what advice would you give that 21 year old? If you could go back and talk to her. It's going to sound crazy to you probably because we just talked about like the traveling and that I know I travel a lot. I would travel more. I would be like, don't, like, it won't. I remember like coming to the US and being so worried that I was a few years older going to grad school than like my US sort of the, the, the kids in my class with me because in Europe, we do an extra year of high school. Like, so you already like uh, don't finish till you're like 19, 20. And then, you know, because we have the option and don't pay for education, sometimes that means you take a little bit longer in our education because we can. Um, I had, I remember, I actually had a full travel plan for a gap year between high school and starting university, but there was part of sort of my responsible side of the brain, I guess, that was like, just apply for colleges still. And then I got accepted into a few, and then that brain sort of won and was like, just start university and don't do the gap year. You can travel in between, you're going to take time in between. Sure. And then, of course, that never sort of plans out yeah. the way you plan it. So really having that time, I think I would go back and be like, do that gap year, travel the world. Um, it's a time in your life where there's most of the time, there's no family. There's like, you know, your parents are still in pretty good health. There isn't like any kind of like consciousness yeah. around what's your responsibility in life. You benefit from that brain that's a bit more free and like care, care, um, carefree. So I would go back and say travel more and take more time and don't worry. I love that. I, I say the same thing also. That's more advice I give to kind of people that are going through. I was like, do the abroad programs if you're yeah. in a university, like take advantage of it. I was so focused on, I need experience and internships. And so let me, I was like mm -hmm. always very critical around who I'm meeting and that can lead me to dot, dot, dot. And instead of just, so again, I've made up for it since to your point, I could do more of it. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, whenever I have an opportunity, I'm looking for a global company and does the role require travel? Yes. Yeah. It's unavailable. But I think that's also like another advice. I was like, take more chances. Like I remember like even back then we're so prone as humans to be like, oh, what if X, Y, and C happens? And yeah. really sort of like telling myself, okay, so what if that happens? What if that internship after two months, you're like, it's not for me. Then you try. You're never going to regret being like, oh, I took that shot or I, you know, went away into like another city or another culture and learned something different. I can always come back. I can always be like reassess. And that's easier the younger you are, I think. And like the less you sort of have those ties. So I would really encourage that. Watch me, Matt. In like 15 years, Flora is going to come to me and have that argument. And I would be like, absolutely not. You're not going anywhere without your mother. You're saying she's right going to call me and I'm going to, she's yeah. going to call me and I'm going to give better advice. <laughs> uh, it's so funny. So tell me your favorite book or podcast that you've recently read or listened to that's just significant for you right now. 
Um, I love Armchair Expert with Dex Shepard. Yes. I love, I love, and actually like when I started listening to your podcast, I feel like there's a lot of similarities around, you know, just having conversations with individuals, different stories, sort of like focusing on that and just sort of the dynamic, I feel like the two of you have, it's very like Dex and Monica a little bit. So um, I love Armchair Expert and the book that I've been telling everyone about is Unreasonable Hospitality by Will, I forgot his last name. It's about a, a, a restaurateur in New York City who is leading the number one restaurant in the world. And he wrote a book about how he got there and how he knew to set himself apart is being unreasonable hospitable, hospital to his, like the folks that come into his restaurant. So it's, I think, incredible business advice. It's very much about sort of human connection, the sense of belonging, what he creates in his restaurants. And he happens to be married to Christina Tossi, who's a, a, a baker and has uh, created an incredible bakery empire also in the city. So I find them a really cool couple. And he wrote cool. this book. And it's very much, it's business, it's really it talks about restaurants and hospitality, but really it's about business and how he approaches business, how he approaches leadership. And so I think there's a lot in there that's applicable to every field, really. It's a great book. That's great. I'm going to read that one. That gets me excited. I like, I like those type books. Um, speaking of chefs, do you have a go-to comfort food that you, you love that you go back to? And you and I have that German heritage, so we've had this oh, conversation before. But, but what's uh, what's what's top of mind today? Um, top of mind today because my mom just left on Monday, and my freezer is full of Spätzle, which oh. is Arabian pasta, really, oh. Oh. Um, and sort of the side to any kind of meat dish in the area of Germany I came from. And she was kind enough to make a whole lot of it and freeze it for us for the next nice. few weeks um so yeah probably like German food and German food that's particularly cooked by my mom like I that hadn't gone away of you know you just sit down at her table and it tastes different I love that love it we talked about 90s rom-com so it might be in this but what's your go-to movie that you leverage when you're kind of like I need I'm not feeling very confident I just need to pick me up like what's that movie for you oh god that's gonna be so embarrassing um, oh we've heard some doozies you're okay I've, it's and probably I've not, probably list too. <laughs> you know what, it's probably not a movie. And I've read this now, particularly recently, more often that individuals that have sort of the more high stress or like anxiety sort of, you know, mentality or I guess personality or jobs, that they keep going back to the same movie or shows because it comforts them so they don't have to be surprised by a storyline yeah so it's probably something like Gilmore Girls I could watch like every single season of Gilmore Girls if I need to fall asleep and I can't shut my mind down Gilmore Girls and I'm hey, like I literally have that where I'm like I need to do some housework but I honestly need some background and I was like I love yeah. Gilmore Girls and I want them to make a two of their like reprise because now they left me with the cliffhanger and I keep yeah please keep going I can't get enough of Gilmore Girls yeah yeah so it's probably a dad more than a movie, and you lost me there. But I'm 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 happy it's for you. So I'm happy for you both. Yeah, we're like Matt. That's good, Matt. <laughs> so, really, you have a 14 year old daughter. 
This yes. is the perfect show to watch with her. The perfect show. It's oh, the oh, perfect oh. show for like. It's got to be better than OBX or whatever she wants. I don't know what that is. I don't either. I turned pretty today or whatever. <laughs> Gilmore <laughs> Girls is lovely, and okay. it's it's such a good show for a young woman too. I find it's got to have less pretense in the stuff that she watches. So, you know. And I watch it now, just going back to Gilmore Girls, because I could talk to you about this all day. Yeah. But it's so witty. Like, if you go back now, like the, the jokes that they made with their witty repertoire, I was like, oh my gosh, the writing is so good. So good. And like the cultural yeah. references yes. within the show of like music and literature, it's great. Like my brother and I used to watch it together. He's obsessed. Like I have Christmases of just Gilmore Girl related Christmas gifts from my yes. older brother because it's just, it's wonderful. Yeah. Can I get you to a glass of wine? Yeah. <laughs> I wish for hours. That would be fantastic. That would be great. <laughs> uh, All right, Franzi, this is this is the question for you. Okay. 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 Right, we've asked this to a lot of people, but this is this is the one we really want the answer from from you. If you were president for the day, you need to make one change. You could implement one thing, and you didn't have to worry about Congress or anything. What would you change today? For this country? Yes. I would. You'd have to be the vice president, but the president was giving you the. Yeah, I'm like, I'm sorry, as a non-US citizen, like my only chance to ever get into the White House is my husband. And right. I don't think he has those ambitions, rightfully so, because, you know, you have to be a very specific person to be okay yes. with holding that much power in your life. Yes. Um, I probably would tackle the abortion loss somehow and probably me being a young mom that really got to me and I know there are so many issues uh, right now, but from a gender equality perspective that really freaked me out and having a sister in law right now that lives in a state that was impacted by that who's pregnant is I find it very terrifying. Me too. And I find it very terrifying again from like the perspective of where our society is going. Unfortunately, sexism and sexual violence is a really strong indicator of and predictor as well. And sort of seeing that where we're going. Yeah, it's probably like my, my mom heart. I think that would be the first one I would tackle. And not to say that that's the most important one because I know like the libraries and the racism and there's so much, but yeah. But if, you know, if you've ever read Freakonomics, it's, it's the foundation of all those things. Yeah. You know? And it comes from the same source. I guess. It's, it's overpopulation. Women that don't want their children, men that don't want to support their children. And, you know, we, we don't address those problems near enough. And keeping women sort of in a certain role because yeah. men determine for them what exactly. happens to their bodies. And sort of that is hugely impacted by how men sort of want to keep the world. And yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I think too. And just in general, like healthcare around it, like sometimes there are reasons as to what you need to do to be healthy, but you're making this overarching law. It's mm -hmm. just not great for proactive women healthcare. So yeah, agree. Yeah. All right. So for anyone listening to this podcast, what is one piece of advice that is really significant for you that you're, you kind of hold on to now and you're, you're giving away, you know, you're like, this is so important. If I could give you this piece of advice, here it is today. Assume the best in people. I think, I think I, 
it's so hard because we all have the things that we carry around and motivations and stressors and reasons that impact our daily moods. But I think even in the smallest, like in your families or like in marriage, like Doug and I talk about this a lot in therapy when we, you know, like assume the best that like whatever the reason is another person might be frustrated or mean or something happened, um, you know, that we don't assume they meant to hurt us, but rather there's like a different story. And I think that sort of carries from the very individual level to all the way of like a society level of helping us trying to understand the people around us a bit more. It seems yeah. like the, the centerpiece of your world because yeah. all these people that you're talking to, you have to assume, hey, you know this is wrong. You know you can make a difference. I'm mm -hmm. going to assume that there's that peace in your heart and your soul that you understand that this you need to be a part of the solution and not the problem, right? Yeah. Well, and I always tell people like when I have people come into like my office like about frustrations, I always say to exactly the same thing. I say assume good intent, right? Mm -hmm. So get to peel the onion to get to what's the what's the goal what were they trying to do and maybe poorly but don't just assume that they had the worst intentions and you know again in your world I think it's a little bit different but I think you know there's always if you I always like to peel the onion you always kind of get get back to like the heart of what what's happening what's going on and if you get to that and assume that conversation and connection maybe you can get to that common ground and move forward so I yeah. love that good advice Franzi, you're a rock star and we thank you so much for doing this. Um, you know, uh, it, it's just a part of the civic debate and the critical thinking that I wanted our audience to hear from you and all the great things you're doing and the struggles that you're trying to attack, you know, and, uh, and uh, we're just, we're thankful for you doing this. Um, take care of yourself. Um, I, I can't wait to see pictures of our little one. Give Doug and Flory a, a hug for us and give uh, to say hello to your mother for us yeah. and, tell her, and tell her we wish her well. But thank you for doing this. And we're, we're excited about hearing more about everything you're going to do in the future. And we're, we're happy that you're in the world. Thank you so much, both of you. Such an honor. Um, and yeah, congrats on your podcast. It's amazing. It's been really fun listening to you. And give Karen and the kids a big hug for me. I will. I will. And Uncle Ken. Yes, we we we'll do all that for you. Have a good one. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Thanks for everything. So much. Bye, you Tim. Take care. Well, Beth, I I obviously am. Uh, um, I have my reasons to to love that that gal. But how did how did how did you feel about that conversation? I mean, she's just amazing on so many different levels. Like I, I love her approach to life. Um, I love her perspective. I love the work she's doing is so important. Like I can't even, sometimes that's why I kind of ask the question, like, you know, how do you break that down? Give me a, a success story. Cause I feel like there's so much, um, to solve and so many problems. And she deals with such big macro issues. Like I would feel like if I couldn't start seeing progress, I would get frustrated. And the fact that she's out there every day, just providing input insight, still taking each challenge and each problem, like piece by piece and providing opportunities for ideas to solve 
in a baby step approach, working with the local communities, wherever they may be. I, wow. I mean, yeah. out of the park, like phenomenal human being, phenomenal work she's doing. And, you know, wow. <laughs> I, I, and that's why I always come back to those questions about how you how you deal with the stress and the life that you're dealing with because i feel like if we don't prop people like franzi up if we don't give them breathers and and stand by their side we lose those people they go i can't you know i can't do this anymore i can't do it by myself so you know i i think she's a, a great lesson that you know when you have people like that in your life you, you make sure they're happy you make sure they're healthy you make sure they have outlets and because they're doing great things you know, and, and if we lose them, that's one one less person that's fighting those battles for good. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, she's an impressive, impressive person. I mean, you're so lucky to have her in your family. I mean, <laughs> I, I want to meet her in real life. So whenever she comes out or if you guys are heading up to New York, um, I would love to be a part of that introduction, like in person versus just over the video. So yeah, for uh, bringing her onto our, our show. She'd love that. Yeah, we definitely want to travel with them. They're, you know, they've got little ones. They're going to have toddlers for the next few years, but we we want to travel with them. And it, 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 the whole family's great. So we, it, it's so nice to have family where, you know, her. there's four brothers, their parents, and we've got cousins and we just love hanging out with each other. So, but she, her and I have some really in-depth conversations over the Thanksgiving table when we're together and holidays. So um, she's fantastic. So for our audience out there that jumped on to be significant and listen to us again, we're, we're thankful that you, you listen. We hope you're as wowed by uh, Franzi Proxel Tabuchi as much as we were. Um, we're thankful that you hopped on and listened to us again. Um, if you have any comments, concerns, feedback, we'd love to hear it at be significant for you, number four, letter U at gmail.com. Um, we'd love it if you'd give us a rating. We'd love uh, if, you, if you had fun, listen to us. Um, even if you only listen for 20, 30 minutes and you got a little something out of it, if you can click those five stars for us and let other people know that it's worth taking their time um, to, to follow, we'd love it. You can do that through Apple or Spotify. Um, and, and don't forget to subscribe. So like Beth and I always tell you, don't let life happen to you. Go make it happen. Take a chance. And we hope you have a significant week until we get to talk to you again. Take care, everybody. Thank you.